There is no doubt that this is the best time in history to learn a language, especially English. We are surrounded by a world of English content. English language learning apps, English courses, English teachers, information. But one important question still remains. What do we do with all this information? How do we study? How do we learn a language? One man who knows the answer to this question is Paul Nation. He has been studying language acquisition and language teaching methodology for more than 50 years. In this interview, he talks about the four strands. And by following this simple concept, both teachers and students can find success at teaching and learning a language. Mr. Paul Nation, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, you're welcome. So I think that in, in the world of, you know, language learning and vocabulary learning, you're definitely considered, um, you know, one of the, the experts in the field. And, and I know that you've developed these, not just in vocabulary learning, but in language learning in general, you've developed these four strands, which are um, meaning-focused input, meaning-focused output, uh, language-focused learning and fluency development. And, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about exactly what, you know, what each one of those strands are. Well, the reason that I, I ended up with something like the four strands is that I'd read a lot of research, but I was having trouble connecting it to each other. So, you know, you'd read one piece of research about writing and how, you know, what was important for writing. And then you'd read another piece of research, something to do with speaking and, and, and you'd sort of see, well, and then about, you know, research about deliberate learning and so on. So I thought we need some sort of framework to sort of connect these to each other. Um, and so I, I eventually came up with the idea of, of the four strands and it was, it's, it's not a very profound idea, but it actually has some really profound implications, I think. And the problem is that there is no research which I could, I, there's no research which actually supports the idea of the four strands as four strands. And I don't really see how you could sensibly do research which would support the idea, but there is evidence for each one of the strands. So there's very strong evidence, for example, that there should be learning through comprehensible input. And and Steve Krashen has been one of the people who has really advocated this very strongly indeed. But there's also evidence that it's really important to learn through output as well, and that that input by itself is not enough. There's also very strong evidence for deliberate learning, and that is, you know, doing study of language features, particularly for vocabulary. And there's plenty of evidence for the importance of fluency development and how, um, you know, you can know the language and yet not be able to use what you know. And so it's important to be able to make the best use of what you already know. And so I just put these these together into the four strands. The, the implications which come from the four strands, I think, are important. And the, the implication is that three quarters of your time that is meaning-focused input, meaning-focused output, and fluency development should be spent actually using the language. Because those three strands of input, output, and fluency development all require a focus on communication and a focus on the message. So if we regard reading as communication and writing to someone to tell them something as communication, or, or even writing an article, you know, to get to communicate ideas to people. If we see all of those as communication, then three quarters of the time in a language course should be spent actually using the language. I suspect, and, and from my personal experience, I think that that is not how a majority of language classrooms are, are, are kind of set up. And I think that probably a lot of learners would be very surprised to hear that something like 
kind of sitting down with a book and 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 you know memorizing stuff you 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 know would be something that you would only spend maybe 25% of your time doing rather than 90%. So I'm sort of wondering how you feel about kind of the state of the industry at the moment. Yeah, well I I think there's just far too much teaching going on. Um and it, this isn't a new view. I mean, I've looked back at the writings of Michael West, for example, who's one of my heroes in the field of vocabulary studies. And well over, oh, let me think now, it's probably 80 years ago, West was saying things like, you know, there is too much teaching going on in classrooms and not enough learning going on. And so, so you know, it's by no means a new idea. And And the problem is that, Teachers believe, I think, that learning comes from teaching. And if you take a fairly narrow view of teaching to include part of what is language-focused learning, um, then, then, of course, yes, there is far too much teaching going on because, as you say, 80 90% of the time that learners spend in language courses seem to be on language-focused learning. So... It's really important to realize that things like extensive reading are actually major contributors or can be major contributors to learning. Now, one of my colleagues who I respect very much, Barty Laufer, argues that in language, you know, that extensive reading is important, but in language courses, most people learn vocabulary through deliberate study. And she's right, but it shouldn't be like that. People should be spending, you know, three quarters of the time actually learning vocabulary through reading, learning vocabulary through listening, putting vocabulary into use through speaking and writing, and about a quarter of the time actually studying vocabulary or being taught vocabulary. So I think that's one of the more profound implications of the four strands, and that is we have to see deliberate learning as playing a relatively small but important part. And in that strand of deliberate learning, teaching is only a part of that strand. So it's really less than one-eighth of a course, you know. I know a majority of, of you know, EFL classrooms are sort of centered around the workbook. Um, but it seems that a lot of your work shows that, you know, workbooks are not really where the learning happens. Well, I've just been working on workbooks, actually. <laughs> um, I've been trying. To, I wrote a wrote a, a my favorite book that I've written is a book called What Should Every EFL Teacher Know? And I thought because I'd read I'd read about two or three other people's attempts to write a similar kind of book. And I looked at those attempts and thought, hell, I can do better than that. And then <laughs> and then I thought. I've been working in this field for 50 years. If I can't just sit down and say what I think is important for someone, you know, for for a teacher to know and for a teacher to do, then I've been wasting my time. So I, I wrote that book probably within a couple of weeks because it didn't require lots of research. It required lots of drawing on research I'd already read and, and, and experience and things like that. And it, it's actually the book I felt most satisfied with after writing it. And I, I'm, I've been recently working on a, a simpler version of that book. That book is very simple and straightforward, and it's written within roughly a three to, three to 4,000 word vocabulary. But I'm writing a book for teachers who have very little training and who teach in circumstances where they have to use a course book and so on. And so by looking at that and applying the idea of the four strands, I sort of came to the conclusion that at the very most, a, a course book can provide about half of the material that you need for a well-balanced language course. Because you, you can't exclude, you can't include, sorry, extensive reading within a course book. Because in extensive reading involves each person reading at their own level and reading very large quantities of material not, not a few thousand words but but you know hundreds of thousands of running words and you just can't put all that in the course book 
And even if you could, you, you wouldn't be at the right level for some of the students in, in the course, in the class, because every class has a range of proficiencies. And it's the same with extensive listening. You can't include all of that. And then, you know, you could include a reading fluency course, I suppose, within a course book. But even then, you're looking at quite a substantial addition to the course book. So course books can't cover everything. And I, I reckon at the best, if you've got the best designed course book, you're lucky to cover half of what needs to be covered in terms of opportunities for learning. I think this maybe this links back to your kind of original, um, you know, the thing you were talking about before, that there's too much teaching going on. Like, because um, I, I know that you sort of see the role of the teacher not as a person who kind of delivers knowledge, but more, you know, as an abstract sort of, um, you know, an abstract figure in the classroom who who is there to motivate and guide and maybe not to do so many explicit things. Is that is that a, a fair summary of your ideas or, or not, not really? I tried to list, and whenever I make a list, I like to rank the list because there's not much point in making a list unless you, you signal what's important in it and so on. And I, I put the teacher's number one job as a planner. And the two major ways of planning, which I looked at, but there are probably other ways, is first of all to make sure that there's a balance of opportunities across the four strands. And then the second aspect of planning is to make sure that you're focusing on material which is appropriate to the student. That is, you're not teaching really low-frequency vocabulary, but you're teaching vocabulary, which is the next most important level of vocab for learners to, to, to learn, and the same with grammar features and so on. The second job of the teacher is probably to organize, and that is to, to get the classroom working to organize extensive reading, to organize uh, conversation activities, to organize extensive listening and to set up procedures and things like that so the learners can get on and do the work. And the third job of the teacher is to train and that is to train the learners in taking some responsibility for their own learning and to learn strategies which really help them to become independent from teachers. And I, I sort of, at times I want to raise the ranking of the training one because I think a very important job of teachers is to train. And in, in real life, I've come across a few examples which have been quite striking for me about the effect of training people how to learn. I, I've got a sore knee. Well, it's not that sore, but my knee is a bit weak. So I went to see a physiotherapist. And the physiotherapist turned out to be a friend of one of my relatives, but that, that's neither here nor there. And he was telling me how he became a physiotherapist. When he was working, he was working in the in the post office, a sort of telecom thing, with my nephew, actually this is the relative, and while they were there, they had to go on training courses. And he went on a training course, and on one of the training courses, they gave him some hints about how to go about learning the material related to his job. And he, he, he sort of took these points and, and applied them and found, wow, when I was at secondary school, I thought I was dumb because I wasn't doing well at school at all. And now that someone showed me how to do these things, I find that I can do them quite easily. Now, the, the things that he was told were, were actually not that great. I mean, there's much better advice that could have been given, but he was told things like, you know, get the important points, write them on post-it notes, stick them on your refrigerator, stick them on the wall and things like that. You know, Now, there's much better training that you can do, like teaching people the importance of retrieval, for example, and the importance of spaced repetition, the importance of spaced retrieval, the importance of quality of mental processing. You know, these things are very well-proven ways. But what he did was then when he realized that he was good at, you know, he, he wasn't dumb. He was good at learning. He, he then said, well, I always wanted to be a physiotherapist. So then he enrolled at university for a course in physiotherapy. And now he's a really highly regarded 
physiotherapist doing the job he loves. And in a way, that's traceable back to a teacher who said, I'm not here just to teach the things. I'm here also to show you how you can learn and go about learning. So I, I, you know, I'm a great um, espouser of, you know, the autonomy movement. I just think that, you know, people are really primarily responsible for their own learning. But teachers have a responsibility to show them how to do this well, you know, and it's important then that that part of a teacher's job is not only saying, here's what you need to know, but here's what here's, here's how you can know it. And here's how research shows you can know these things and learn them well, you know. And now I've, got, I've forgotten the fourth and fifth jobs of the teacher now, but there's something like um, to test Oh, yes, that's right. To test learners so that you can find out where they are. They can find out where they are in their learning and the teacher can see if they're making progress. And the fifth job is to actually teach. And teaching is important, but it's at the bottom of the list, you know. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And um, it's also interesting the way that you described testing. You said that, you know, testing, the, the, the role of testing is to give the, the students feedback on their mistakes but, you know, when you look at the way that testing and especially kind of exams like IELTS and, and TOEFL, if you look at the way they're used, they're not actually used as feedback tools at all. Um, and I'm wondering how, how you kind of feel about language exams as a thing. Well, things like TOEFL were not designed to give feedback to students. Things like, you know, tests like TOEFL were really designed to... Uh, become gatekeepers for entrance into university and things like that. I think they had a, they had other aims, and and so it's it's fair enough, and they're supposed to be proficiency measures and so on. They're they're not terribly successful. I haven't I haven't seen recent research about TOEFL, but some of the early re reports said there was something like a correlation of about point three, I think it was, between TOEFL score and eventual grade point average. You know, when you when you say, well, you know, three times three equals 0 0.09 or something like that, it means less than 10% of the factors involved in success at university are measured by TOEFL. And that and and you can see well yeah otherwise what, why doesn't every native speaker do brilliantly at university, you know because if if you're a native speaker you know in theory you should get a good score on TOEFL and therefore you should do brilliantly at university but of course they don't you know there's a whole lot of other things that matter but but that, those tests have a different purpose. And I think you have to see testing as having a wide variety of purposes. And you've got to say, well, what's this test for? Is it fulfilling that aim? You know, is this test to give feedback to the learners? Is it to give feedback to me? Uh, is it to actually rank the people in my class so that we can then, you know, do some terrible thing with them according to their ranking or whatever? And you've got to work out your purpose for testing and then make sure your tests match that purpose. Um, I, I was wondering if we could just go back slightly and talk a little bit about comprehensible input, because I know that, you know, that Krashen is a, is a big promoter of this idea. But I also know that one of the one of the central criticisms of of this of this kind of push is that comprehensible input is difficult to define, especially when, you know, there's Krashen's formula about, you know, when you want to sort of move up, it should be I I plus one and about what, what exactly is, you know, plus one, how do you define it? So, so how can a learner decide what, what is comprehensible input? Yeah, I don't have any trouble with the definition. I, I um, from a vocab perspective, I think it's fairly straightforward. And from a vocab perspective, it's uh, no more than two unknown words per hundred running words. So that means on a 300 word page, there shouldn't be more than six unknown words. Well, actually, this this was actually, um, yeah, a piece of research which really surprised me of, of yours from uh, from 2000 with you and um, Marcella Hu. Um, and, and yeah, and you, I don't know if you were the first to discover it, but you, you proved that um, you need to know 98% of vocabulary in a text for it, for you to have unassisted comprehension. I mean, that blows my mind. 
I would have, my instinct would have told me that, you know, maybe like 75% or something. I wasn't the first to discover that. You can go back to Michael West and Michael West in his writings say one, un un one unknown word in every 50. He wasn't doing it from research. He was doing it from being a teacher who was writing material for students to read. And that's what he came to. Um, the research shows that the more, the great, the higher the coverage, the greater the comprehension will be. So you can still comprehend a, a text with, say, certainly with 95%, but the comprehension isn't as great as you'd probably like it to be. And you can get some degree of comprehension with 90%, but it's still, you know, you're getting further away from having good comprehension. So um, th there's been later research on that. It's the... the I, you don't want to take it too, how would you say, I was going to say too seriously. Uh, you probably should take it a little bit seriously, but 98% is, you know, a fairly precise sort of figure. And the rule of thumb that people who, people apply with extensive reading is you should pick up a book, have a look, and if there are, you know, a lot of unknown words on the first page or the second page, you've probably got a book which is too difficult for you. And if there's only a few unknown words, then you've probably got a book at the right level and things like that, you know. So so you, you can try and get precise about it. And and research can give you some support on that. But but in practice, it's quite good to just say, look, if you're overburdened with unknown words, you're reading the wrong book. I know that um, you know the next the next part of the kind of strand is is uh, is meaning based output, and yeah. what's what's interesting I think is that a lot of the 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 systems out there you know systems and methods and 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 also interestingly even polyglots that I've spoken to um, they're really always telling me that you know input is the thing it's like reading listening input 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 and and so for me, it's kind of refreshing to see, you know, a, a real focus put on output. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it's, it's common sense, really, because you're not going to be a good speaker unless you do some speaking. You're not going to be a good writer unless you do some writing, you know. So, so there's, there's a, one of the principles that I, I think is a, quite an important one, but a very crude one, is what's called the time on task principle. And that is, if you want to be good at something, do it a lot. And it, it's it's a fairly crude quantity-based principle, but it almost always works. And so that means if you want to be good at reading, do lots of reading. And you'll get really good at reading, you know, and, and particularly if, you, if you're getting comprehensible input and gradually, you know, keeping to your I plus one as you move up the, the levels and so on. But if you want to get good at speaking, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get there by just doing lots of reading. It's going to help, but it's not going to take you that, you know, to become a good speaker. You've got to speak. And so in a way then, you know, that, that's the sort of common sense argument. There's also some research support for the comprehensible output idea, um, but it's probably not as strong as the, as the input research. Yeah. I've just finished a book with Rob Waring on extensive reading where we reviewed yeah, much of the research. There is a, there is quite a lot of research, and we tried to pick out what was the very best research and so on. But the research evidence for comprehensible input is is very strong evidence. But it's it's as you mentioned earlier, it's it's really to get teachers accepting the idea that it's okay for learners to sit down and spend almost, say, close to a quarter of their learning time in and out of the classroom, just sitting down quietly reading, that's a hard thing for teachers to accept. And they think, oh, but I should be teaching, you know, how can they learn if I'm not teaching? And and how can we be sure that they're really reading and, and you know, that they're really learning and so on? And and it's a brave teacher who, who lets that happen. But the research shows that it does happen, but it, but it's it's difficult. Yeah, there's a, uh, the paper which which you talk about a lot, uh, the 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 book flood um, study, um, and yeah, that was some amazing results from that. Yeah, and by a fellow New Zealander, Warwick Ellie, I think I think it was a great piece of research. That a very very practical piece of research with very clear 
clear results and so on. Yeah, that's that's one of the pieces we review in the book, actually. And I, I wanted to ask you about, um, well, I wanted to actually read to you a little bit from your from the PDF that's available on your website, which is called, What Do You Need to Know to Learn a Foreign Language? And I think that any anybody who wants to actually learn a language definitely needs to read that PDF because it's incredible. And and there's one thing because the the next part of your the next part of the four strands is about language focused learning and 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 this this was really interesting to me you said typically people think of the learning of grammar as involving the learning of names of parts of speech learning to describe grammatical constructions and learning how to correct errors however the, there are these are all ways of doing deliberate learning and most of the learning of grammar needs to involve using the language the re- the research on vocabulary shows clearly that if you do deliberate study, this it creates both what's called implicit knowledge and explicit knowledge. Steve's crash and argue, argument was that all deliberate learning only results in explicit knowledge. But uh, research by one of our PhD students, Irina Elgort, showed that deliberate learning of vocabulary resulted in both explicit knowledge, knowledge which you can retrieve from your brain and talk about and you're consciously aware of and so on, but it also created implicit knowledge. And uh, But this, I don't think the same is true for grammar. And that's that's one of the, the, the issues that really needs more research in the learning of grammar. I think that the explicit study of grammar results in explicit knowledge. And and uh, I think the people who, who focus on grammar learning, like Rod Ellis and others, I think they, they agree with that. It, they, they argue that language use is required to, to develop implicit knowledge of grammatical features. And implicit knowledge means the knowledge you use without having to consciously retrieve it. So when you speak, you don't think, you know, how do I construct this sentence or so on? You just, you make your, your sentence and, and so on and analyze the grammar. So um, so I think it's even more important for grammar that, you know, there's large amounts of opportunity for use. And then the fourth, the fourth strand is, is, is about practice. It's about fluency development. So again, could you sort of summarize this strand as just, kind of more usage it's more usage but with no new language feature learning that that that's a bit of a it's a bit of a cop out in a way because there is language feature learning in the sense that you you strengthen your knowledge of known language features and you enrich your knowledge of known language features um, but it means that there is that a good fluency development program doesn't involve unknown vocabulary and doesn't involve unknown grammar and probably involves largely familiar content and it's just getting good at using what you already know one of one of my favorite stories for that is when i first taught in japan i went and i taught a couple of weekend courses and uh, in the week between the two weekend courses we we traveled around looking at beautiful places like Kyoto and so on. And the time came for us to travel from Kyoto to Osaka to teach the the second weekend course. So we got on a train, but I didn't, I knew hardly any Japanese. And so, uh, you know, wasn't sure if I was on the right train. And so I, I just looked around and there was a young studi- studi- studious looking um, woman you know, sitting there wearing glasses and everything. So oh, she'll speak English. So I said, is this the train to Osaka? And she looked at me and went, <gasps> buried, buried her face in her hands. And I thought, what the hell have I done here? Because, you know, I've read about Japanese people. You know, once they lose face, they commit harakiri. And, you know, you, ne- you never know what you're going to be responsible for. And anyway, a voice, a man's voice from the front of the train said, yes, Osaka. So that's all right. So we went along. Anyway, so she's sitting in the row, just, you know, the same row as us, but with the aisle between us, you know. 
So I happen to accident, and she picks, she's saying she picks a book out of her bag and starts reading the book. Well, I accidentally drop my pen and I bend down to pick it up and look and see what's the name of the book she's reading. And the book's in English and it's called The Macroeconomics of Agriculture. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? Because here, here's a book called The Macroeconomics of Agriculture. I can't read that book. You know, that I, I, I'd be struggling. And yet she's sitting there. She's not flipping away to look at a dictionary or anything like that. But she can't comp cope with the sentence, is this a train to Osaka? Anyway, we get to Osaka, get off the train, and she comes up to us and says, where are you going? Now, I guarantee she's been practicing that sentence for the last 15 minutes, you know, before the train gets it. And anyway, so we, we tell her what suburb we're heading to, and she says, follow me. And so we follow her, and we, we manage then to strike up a kind of conversation. And it turns out that she's a master's level student studying economics through the medium of English in the Japanese university and so on like that and so on. But it seemed to me here was, a, here was a quite a good example of someone very knowledgeable about English, but with no spoken, flu very low degree of spoken fluency. And you could see how if she had a course where she concentrated not on learning new vocabulary or things like that, but just said, let's take what you know and get that really good use and work that up to a level and where if someone says you can respond straight away, you know. And, and that's why fluency is a very important part of a course, because you can know a lot but not be able to use it. And so fluency needs to be across each one of the four skills of listening, speaking, reading, and writing. And the fluency, the results from fluency courses are quite, particularly reading fluency, are quite striking. You know, you get learners doing a, a reading fluency course at the right level for them, which means well below their current vocabulary level. And by spending about between seven and 10 minutes in 20 different times, you can double the reading speed of some learners and increase most of their reading speed by 50%. You know, now that seems too good to be true, but time after time after time of doing speed reading courses shows that this is what happens. And, it's, and, and so the, the payoff for focusing on fluency is very high. And it's a very important part of a course. That that is that is really fascinating, and and I wonder if um a lot of you know a lot of students need to kind of stop with the obsession of moving to the next level and and just yeah focusing on improving the skills that they already have. Yeah, well that's right. So so I think there's a lot of knowledge there which is not usable, and the idea is making the best use of what you already know. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about some vocabulary learning techniques. Because I was I was actually um, speaking to David Crystal um, recently, and and he said to me that you know grammar is something that you can kind of you know it has this finite kind of you know there's finite things to learn, but vocabulary just seems like this impossible you know Mount Everest of of, of learning. And he said he asked me he said do you know any you know good techniques for vocabulary learning in the classroom? And I said well. It's kind of a bit like, no, not really. It's more just about like reading and and he he really wasn't impressed with <laughs> with with my answer. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, about if if you could maybe talk a little bit about some kind of specific techniques, like maybe flashcards and spaced repetition and things like that. The most important selection principle for vocabulary is the principle of frequency. And that is you should be learning high-frequency words before low-frequency words. After you've learnt the high-frequency words, unless you have special purposes, you should be going on to what's now called the mid-frequency words. And we now have very well-researched, carefully constructed word lists showing the rough order in which students should deal with vocabulary. And that rough order makes sure that they get the best return for their learning. And this is coming back to that first job of the teacher of planning, making sure that, you know, they're not learning 
this this rather useless topic-related vocabulary which differs from one topic to another, but they're really consolidating this vocabulary which is across, across a, useful across a wide range of topics and uses and so on like that. So that's one thing. The second thing about techniques for learning vocabulary, well, this is this is where I think the four strands has this is one of the 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 more profound parts of the four strands. If you ask, how do you learn vocabulary? How do you learn grammar? How do you learn to read? How do you learn to write? How, how do you learn pronunciation? The answer simply is the four strands. So if you want to learn vocabulary, you have to say, okay, how do I learn vocabulary through meaning-focused input? Okay, so that means that if I want to learn vocabulary, I better start doing a lot of extensive reading and extensive listening. Okay, how do I learn vocabulary through meaning-focused output? Okay, now I've got to find ways of turning my reading and listening into spoken and written production. Because if you can, if you can connect the content of your input and output strands, you increase the opportunities for repetition enormously. And repetition, there are only really two things that matter in learning vocabulary, if you want to get really simplistic. And the first thing is repetition. And the second thing is the quality of mental processing of the words that you want to learn. And they're the two things that you've got to really deal with. And then, and then the third learning vocabulary is, well, how do I deliberately learn it myself? What should I do to deliberately learn vocabulary? And the re research is very clear on this. The, the answer is use flashcard programs or word cards. Put the translation from L1 on the back and the word you want to learn on the front. And don't, don't make your word cards too elaborate. Use phrases if you want to use phrases as well as words and so on, but then do spaced retrieval, you know, not massed retrieval, do spaced retrieval. That is, work on your word cards for 10 minutes now, put them away, come back a few hours later, have another go, come back tomorrow, have another go, you know, and then keep changing the order of the word cards and all, all sorts of things like that. So, but but the spaced retrieval thing for deliberate learning is a very, it's probably the most robust learning principle that we know of. And, and there's, the research on this is a very, it's an enormous body of research. It's not just about learning vocabulary, it's about learning, you know, memorizing anything really. That's where teacher learner training learners is really important because you can do deliberate learning badly or you can do deliberate learning well and to do deliberate learning badly you know make a vocab notebook write the word in the notebook and its meaning next to it so you don't have to do retrieval you know that that's bad learning whereas if you use a flashcard program on your cell phone something like i know or something you know a program like that where you know, you put the word in and then and the meaning and then you can see the word, then you have to retrieve the meaning and you can go from meaning to the, the word as well, that sort of stuff. These are very efficient. If we look at quality of mental processing, the shallowest type of mental processing is simply paying attention to it. And I, it's, that's called noticing. So you look at the word and, and looking up a word in the dictionary is an example of noticing. You just look at the word, you look at its meaning, say, ah, hmm, okay, good. Now, if you want to go deeper, then what you should do is you should, you know, put your word onto a word card and then start doing retrieval, where you look at the word and say, what the hell did I write on the back of the word card, you know, and you're then trying to retrieve that meaning. Now, if you want to move to a deeper level, then a deeper level is what's what I now call varied meetings and varied use. And that is you you come across the word or you, you do retrieval, but you do retrieval under different circumstances or with different contexts and so on. And the reason why extensive reading is good for vocabulary learning is because extensive reading 
provides many, many opportunities for varied meetings with words. So that means you meet a word in a graded reader and you might have to look it up and so on. And the next time you see it in a graded reader, it will be in a different context. That's not, I'm not making that up. We've looked at, we've done concordances of words in graded readers and in books. And, and almost invariably, the word occurs in a different kind of context. And, and then you have to do retrieval again, but this time there are different context clues and it, there might be a different adjective with the noun or whatever like that. And, and that variedness really deepens the quality of mental processing. And the deepest level is the level where you actually elaborate on the words you're learning. So you do word part analysis or you use something like the keyword technique, which is a special kind of mnemonic technique for remembering the meanings of words and so on. Um, and and so, or, or you, you do things like Frank Bus and his colleagues research things like where they, they look at, um, um, you know, what does the sound, does the sound or the shape of this word give you any indication of what the word might mean? And trying to use some kind of elaborated mental, mental connection to make that word stick in your memory. Now, it doesn't mean that we should always be processing at the deepest level. But it means that we should be trying to make use of retrieval. We should be trying to make use of varied use. And we should be trying to make use of elaboration wherever we can. I, I think that one, you know, one great thing that you talk about in, in, your, in, in your PDF and in your work in general is that, you know, you're honest about the fact that learning a language is really hard. You know, you're not going to learn a language in 30 days or whatever. And, and I'm wondering, since, since it's so difficult, how can learners since it's so difficult and you need motivation, right? You need to have motivation to keep going. How can learners do things like flashcards and lots of reading? How can they do those things which, which could be really boring, right? If they're not actually meaningful to them, how can they kind of marry things that are, they're personally interested to with vocabulary that's going to be useful? Um, well, this is part of the teacher's job too. I mean, the, when you can read, when you read your first book in English from the beginning to the end and understand most of it, that's very motivating. You know, I, I, I've been struggling to learn how to read Thai. And when I got to the end of my first book, I felt a real achievement. I thought, boy, I've done that, you know, and that thing. So, so that learners will feel that themselves, but this, this also needs to be marked. And, and one of the, one of the ways in which testing can help or record keeping can help is for learners to see that they are actually making progress and that there are signs of them making progress. Um, and so with extensive reading, you know, the number of books read, the time taken, your reading speed and all of that, these things increase as you do these activities. And teachers should be always drawing attention to those and making sure that the learners keep that motivation. Um, but, but language learning is a long job. There's no doubt about it. I mean, native speakers have a vocabulary, native speakers of English have a vocabulary of around about oh, 18, 20,000 or so words. And there's no way you're going to pick that up in a year or six months or so on. And, and so you just have to see that if you want to get really good at, at using a language, it's a long-term job. Um, well, just just um, one final question based on, um, you know, based on, you know, like 50 years of research and, and your passion for, you know, for language learning. What, what is the kind of the kind of central thing that you really want any of the teachers and students who are watching this? Well, what is the one thing you want them to to take away from your work? I would guess that the I, I think I'd go back to what I said originally about training learners to take control of their own learning. I think that teachers are, are, are probably very conscientious people who work hard, but they have to realize that their working hard can be counterproductive. Um, my teacher used to sort of amaze some of his classes by saying the best teacher is a lazy teacher. 
but the, but there was always a truth underlying that because if the teacher is working hard that means that the wrong person in the classroom is working hard. The learner should be working hard. The, teach, the teacher knows the language. Why is the teacher working hard? And so the teacher really should be making sure that the, the, the learning is being done by the learners and that they're working away at it. So I think this idea of informing learners, of um, showing them the range of options that they need to do to learn a language. You know, that deliberate learning is only a part of it, an important part, but only a part, and that there is a balance of things to learn. I think getting this knowledge across is really important. Well, I, I really I really learned a lot, um, especially reading through, you know, reading through some of your 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 research. A lot of it kind of blew my mind. I think one thing over above all was that... Um, learning um learning synonyms together actually makes it worse when you're memorizing vocab that research is coming under attack a little bit now and and fair enough um the 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 more recent research shows that i think the more recent research agrees that initial learning is harder by learning these related items together but in the long term, it probably doesn't matter so much. But uh, but that 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 research is still very much underway, and I'm glad that there's a group of people who are still plugging away at that, and and uh, mainly in Japan, who are who are really starting to tease out the the, the different aspects of that. Yeah, but but certainly for initial learning, it, it doesn't seem to help. Yeah, I think I think the one thing that's that surprised me about all the conversations I've had with with you know experts in the, in the in the field of language is that pretty much universally they all tell me, well, there's just so much we don't know. We're just so ignorant still after you know decades of research. <laughs> there's a lot of research to be done, but there's a hell of a lot of research which is already done, and and so it's important that um, that people. Well, it's interesting actually. I was at I went to the dentist a few months ago and I, I asked the dentist who who's a very she's a very capable and 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 uh, how would you say progressive sort of dentist, you know, gets all the new equipment. And I said, Do you actually read any of the research which is going on you know, on dentistry about treatments and things like that? She said, I wouldn't know where to start. You know. I wouldn't I wouldn't know which which journals to get and things like that and and I, I was a little bit surprised and then I thought about it and I thought well I don't really expect teachers people who are teaching to be reading journals like TESOL quarterly or language learning or, or or language teaching research and and those sorts of journals they've got so many other things that they need to do so it's people such as you know us teacher trainers who really have this responsibility to make a bridge between the research and the application of that research to classrooms. And that's where I see is my niche. Even though I also do research, I think the most important thing I do is to try and keep up with research and then try to present it in a written form through books and that, that the teachers can then readily get access to and understand. And so I think that, you know, it's quite, it's, it's, it's sort of important that, w that we don't lose sight of the fact that there is a lot of research and there is a lot of things we know and we know which are really important for learning. It, it's not all up in the air at all. I, I, you know, I, I get probably accused or criticized sometime for being fairly prescriptive in my classes. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't say this might be good and that might be good. I say this is what I think you should do, and A, B, C, D, like that. And for some people, that that doesn't go down so well. And I can understand why, because there's all sorts of uncertainties in life and things like that. But I, I but I think that that there are things which are very clear from the research, and I think teachers need to know those, and they need to be trying to apply them. It's part of their professional responsibility. This is why, you know, with extensive reading, you, you sometimes start, I was going to say tear your hair out, but I can't do that anymore. Um, it, it, you, you, sort of, you sort of say, look, 
the research on extensive reading is very clear. It helps learning. It's, it's not a matter of it might or something like that. The research shows that it does. And so, therefore, if you're not really, if, you, if you're running a, a, a substantial language course and you haven't got an extensive reading program, you're actually not fulfilling your professional responsibility. Because the research shows clearly that this helps learning and it, and it indicate we, we know roughly how much should be done and how much needs to be done and it's feasible to do it, do it, you know. And if people don't do it, then they're basically ignoring research and I don't think that's a good thing at all. Yeah, no, no, look, you're absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, this is just one tiny aspect of, of this kind of bigger picture of, you know, there's so many things about the industry and and i think the problem is essentially that a lot of these things are out of the the control of the hands of the teachers you know it's like the administration forces them to do these things uh in class to meet these you know these arbitrary targets because they've got to do this arbitrary test or whatever and so you know a lot of times you know teachers don't get to decide or even if they do get to decide they're fed with such you know basically false information and lies from you know from from companies that just want to basically make money and so you know it's it all does a disservice to the student really yeah well one of the interesting places i've visited was a language school in japan and there's a language a private language called they call them jukus i think and 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 they they run after school hours and kids after the school day ends they go along probably at about could be six o'clock or something, and it could be six to nine or four to seven. I can't remember. Sometime like that after school, and they'll spend, you know, three hours studying at the school. Well, the school I was particularly interested in, Japan, ran their three-hour classes where half of the three hours was simply extensive reading. They, there was no teaching involved. They simply, students simply sat down, chose a book at the right level for them, and read it quietly. And 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 and, and in some cases, if they want to spend the whole three hours doing extensive reading, they can. But typically, the other one and a half hours is spent in a group of about, I think, oh, I don't know, eight or ten, with a, a native speaker doing spoken interaction and things like that. Now. The guy who runs this school, it's an interesting story I haven't got time to go into, but he, he's doing really well. The, school, the school's making a lot of money. And I couldn't believe that parents would pay substantial amounts of money. The fees are quite high for these schools, where the teacher did nothing for half of the time except sit quietly at the classroom reading a book or just filling in charts and things like that, you know. So went along the sea and sure that they were doing it. And and he, he said, watch this. And he said to the kids, okay, do you like doing this extensive reading? Yep. Everyone said, yep. Of course they would. You know, a teacher asked some stranger there and that. But I think they were answering honestly. And then he said, would you do this at home? And only about two said they would. And the other said, we haven't got time. When we're at home, there are so many other things we've got to do. We've got to do homework. We've got to do this. We've got to do the gather, got friends and so on. Just never get it done. And the reason he's making a lot of money is that his his students get very good grades in the entrance exams to universities, which is why they're at the school, basically. And he's not teaching to the entrance exam or anything like that. He's simply, for at least half the time, they sit and do extensive reading. And so he has no trouble because the parents see the results from the entrance exams and they tell other parents. And so he's doing well. So Teachers have to be brave about this, you know. They've got to, you know. I think that they can do things. Yeah, I, I, empowering teachers, I think, is 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 key. So, I, I hope that that all the teachers who are watching this, you know, do that exact thing. Well, Mr. Paul Nation, thank you very much for your time, sir. No, you're very welcome. Okay, good luck. <laughs>